Well, on February 14th, 2021, last year, we started our study through the book of Exodus, and Lord willing, I make no promises, Lord willing, this morning will be our 36th and final sermon to finish the book of Exodus. And one of the challenges in studying the Bible in general is that it is easy, it is easy to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, We can look so closely at one detail, one verse, one truth, one episode in the massive story of what God's doing. We can look so closely at one detail that we forget the big picture. We can forget the purpose and the point of it all. And, And so as we wrap up Exodus this morning, that is on my mind. I want to make sure that we are grasping the the point and the purpose of Exodus. After all, the book of Exodus is packed with action. You start with a burning bush. Actually, before that, you have a baby in a basket. You've got a burning bush. You've got the 10 plagues. Who can forget about that? You've got Passover with the the blood on the doors. You've got the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, the golden calf, and I hope what is now very exciting to you, the tabernacle. There is all this action going on in the book of Exodus. And with all that has happened, perhaps it's easy to forget the point and the purpose of the book of Exodus. In the Exodus, God was revealing himself. He was revealing his name, who he is, his character to Israel, to Egypt, and to the whole world. He's revealing himself. Remember those words that God spoke to to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, verses 15 and 16. God said this, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth, but for this purpose, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. One of the primary emphases and and focuses of the book of Exodus is on the name of God. I am who I am. He's revealing his name, all that he is, all that his character represents, all his ways are wrapped up in his name. He wants to make his name known through the whole earth. He could have just changed Pharaoh's mind in an instant and let Israel go, but God had a different plan. He could have just had one plague wipe out Egypt, but he had a different plan. He wanted to have plague after plague to demonstrate in an overwhelming sense the supremacy of who he is, the power of his great name. God's mission was not simply to redeem Israel. He could have done that in any number of ways, much easier, much more efficiently. God's mission was not simply or only to redeem Israel, but to make his name known to Israel and through Israel to the world, thus filling the whole earth with the glory of his name. And now that we have come to the end of Exodus, I hope you see that that Exodus is about much more than just an historical deliverance from Egypt. It's even more than just spiritual deliverance from sin and death. The Exodus is about God establishing or reestablishing a relationship with man. It's about God delivering man that he might dwell with mankind, that God might redeem so that he can reveal his glory, his name, his character to man, that he might reveal that he is the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And the Exodus is about God making this name 
known to the whole world. Ultimately, the Exodus is about God filling the whole earth with his glory. And that's why the book of Exodus ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle, which serves as a shadow, a preview, and a foretaste of what is to come. So with that, I want to dive in here to the last verses of Exodus chapter 40. And we're going to have two simple points this morning. Arrival of glory in the tabernacle and awaiting a greater glory in Christ. Arrival of glory in the tabernacle and awaiting a greater glory in Christ. First, arrival of glory in the tabernacle. Let me read for us our passage this morning, Exodus 34, or sorry, chapter 40, verse 34, all the way to the end, verse 38. I'm going to pick it up one verse earlier in verse 33. You can follow along as I read out loud. And he, that's Moses, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the glory, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What we see here is the climactic ending to the book of Exodus. And if your, if your assumption about the Exodus is primarily about the plagues and the, de- the deliverance, this would be very anticlimactic. This would be very surprising. This would be kind of a letdown and confusing. But if you understand the purposes of God and the plan of God and, and what all this is leading towards, this is the perfect ending to the book of Exodus. Moses finishes putting together the tabernacle. That's the, the, the tent, the mobile temple, if you will, that they will take with them throughout the wilderness. They've followed the instructions of God to a T. They've done everything just as God has commanded them. And Moses puts together the tabernacle. He sets everything up just so. And what happens? The cloud covered the tent. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. If you remember earlier, when they come out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is set apart. God tells Moses, don't let any animals come through. Don't let any people come through. No one can touch the mountain. I'm going to be there on the top of the mountain. And the people saw fire and smoke and lightning, and the the, the mountain trembled. And the people were fearful because the presence of God and the glory of God were there on the mountain. God's glory was there, represented by a cloud and by fire. No one could go up there. Only Moses, the mediator, could go up between God and man. Moses could go up and down the mountain. Later on, there would be a a tent of meeting before the tabernacle was done. Moses was instructed to set up a tent of meeting outside the camp, not in the midst of the people. This was outside, away from the people. Set up a tent, and God met with Moses there in the tent of meeting. No one else could go there, only Moses. It was outside, separated from the people. But now... Now the tabernacle is done. The tabernacle is in the midst of the people and God's glory fills it. God's presence comes to dwell in it. The cloud covers it and there God is in the midst of his people. 
This is an amazing and exciting time. This is the fulfillment of what God said in Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now he is dwelling among them. This is a big deal. Right? Exodus 29, verses 45 to 46, God said, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. His purpose to deliver was to dwell with them. I want to pause here and just ask you, do you understand the significance of that? Do you understand the significance of dwelling with God, of having the presence of God, of being there with the glory of God? Psalm 16 is one of my favorite psalms. If you just turn there briefly or you can listen, Psalm 16 has these Beautiful words at the end of the psalm. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, I wonder if, if you have been affected by perhaps the world's thinking about the presence of God, that being in the presence of God who is holy must be a really boring thing. God's such a killjoy. God has so many rules. If you're going to be in God's presence, oh, you better mind your manners. You know, you've got to think about all the etiquette. Do everything just so. It's no fun. No fun. No, the psalmist says, in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. You don't know anything about that. Neither do I. We, we've had... We've had tastes of joy. We've had slight echoes of joy. We've had shadows of joy. We've had just, just the leftovers, just, just little little drops of joy throughout our life, and they're mingled with sin. They're mingled with, with suffering. They're mingled with regret, with comparison. You and I on this side of heaven have never experienced what Psalm 1611 is talking about because our sin separates us from God, but there is a joy that is full. There's there's a pleasure at God's right hand that is incomparable. God longs to bless his people. God longs to dwell with his people, not to judge them, but to bless them. This is like what it was in the Garden of Eden. We've talked about this throughout, but I want to draw these things together now as we finish the book of Exodus. To be in God's presence is to be in the fullness of his joy, to be in the fullness of his blessing, to, to have our sins taken away, to have no regrets and no pain, and no suffering, no death, no sickness. There's some here this morning who have been racked with sickness with the effects of the fall in your own body or in the body of your loved ones. Or perhaps you're racked with guilt and regret. These things go away in the presence of God. And so here we see the glory of God in the form of a cloud coming down into the temple, into the tabernacle. This is the greatest thing imaginable, but it says, did you notice verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Moses couldn't enter. Moses, the one who could go up on the mountain. Moses, the one who could do all these things, who could go in the tent of meeting. And it said there in Exodus earlier that Moses talked with God face to face as a friend would talk to his friend. And now he can't go in. 
It's like, wait, wait, wait. This is, this is what it was all pointing towards, that God would dwell there in the tabernacle. We built the tabernacle that we might dwell with God, and now Moses can't go in. Moses, the mediator, can't go in. If he can't go in, none of us can go in. This is, this is like, parents don't do this. This would be like taking your kids all the way to the gate of Disneyland You even pay for the parking. You walk so close, you can smell the churros, and you say, let's go home. What a letdown. What's going on? I thought we drove here for this purpose. Now we can't go in. We built this for this purpose. Now Moses can't go in. What is this? The book of Exodus ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. The glory of God comes down, but even Moses cannot cannot enter. By the way, later when Solomon builds the temple... Uh, the, the permanent version of the tabernacle where God would dwell amongst his people in Jerusalem. Oh, when, when the, the temple is dedicated in 1 Kings 8, the same thing happens. The, the glory of God comes down and the priests are overwhelmed. They cannot enter the tabernacle. They cannot enter the temple at that time. Why? Because God's presence and glory is a great blessing. But man is sinful. We are sinful. And our sin separates us from God. Our sin has stained us, and we cannot come any closer to God than a, than a piece of tissue paper can land on the surface of the sun without being consumed. Moses is supposed to be able to go in. In fact, I mentioned last week that every detail of the instructions for the building of the tabernacle were fulfilled in the construction, except one thing. The instructions for the tabernacle included Uh, making sacrifices to consecrate, to set apart, to make holy the priests. And that is not recorded for us in the construction of the tabernacle. They are anointed with some anointing oil, but they are not consecrated by blood here. And when the book of Exodus ends, Moses can't go in, and you're left left with this cliffhanger, and the book of of Leviticus starts right in with God speaking to Moses from the cloud. It's as if all of Israel's there, they're expecting this great big thing, Moses can't go in, everyone's confused, and God begins speaking from the cloud and begins commanding them, here are the sacrifices you need to make, here are the burnt offerings, here are the animal sacrifices, here's what you do with the blood. It's as if God is answering the question, how can holy God dwell in the midst of sinful man without killing them? And God says, the answer is sacrifice. The answer is sacrifice. And in fact, Moses and Aaron and the other priests cannot go in until all the sacrifices are done. If you just turn in your Bible to the right, to Leviticus chapter 9. So the first the first few chapters of Leviticus are all about these, these animal offerings and sacrifices. And finally, you get to the end of Leviticus. Look at verse 22. They, they've done the sacrifices now. They've done the offerings for the priests. And now in verse 22, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. So he's, he's made these animal sacrifices. Verse 23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So this tabernacle, with the blessing of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, no one can go in until sacrifices are made, until blood is shed, until a substitute dies in the place of sinful man. Do you see how God all along was teaching his people? 
He was teaching his people theology and doctrine. He was teaching his people, you are sinful, I am holy, and sin requires payment. It requires death. He was teaching them all along. He was preparing them for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so sacrifice was necessary. Sin was necessary. Uh, Sin offering was necessary. Blood was necessary for man to dwell with God. These are the lessons God was teaching them. These are the, the, the breadcrumbs he's laying out that would lead eventually to Christ. But even then, this access that Moses would have, that Aaron would have, was limited. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the the very innermost part of the tabernacle. Only the the high priest, only one man in all of Israel could go in once a year on one day to make sacrifices in the Holy of Holies to pay for the sins of himself and for the people. And so the arrival of the glory of God is this amazing thing, and yet it leaves this cliffhanger that's not answered to Leviticus, and it leaves this greater question of, is this it? Is this it? To go back to the Disneyland analogy, all you can do is walk in and walk up Main Street, but no rides. Only the high priest's dad can go on Space Mountain, only once a year. No, no, no. You can walk up Main Street, look at the shops, you can't buy anything, you can't ride anything, you can't do anything, you can't eat anything. Oh, man, it would have been better just to stay outside. It leaves us with a cliffhanger. The presence of God, the glory of God is there, but access is limited. Access is limited. So that's the first point, arrival of the glory of God in the the tabernacle. It's wonderful, it's amazing, but it's limited. And therefore, they were, and we have been the recipients of this second point. Israel was awaiting a greater glory in Christ awaiting a greater glory in Christ. I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but again, trying to draw these threads together. The tabernacle pointed back to creation. The tabernacle was was pointing back to the garden. And we've we've covered that with a lot of detail before. Uh, God would dwell in the tabernacle just as he dwelled in the garden. Uh, The the tabernacle opened up to the east just as the garden opened up to the east. Uh, The garden was guarded by cherubim. The, The tabernacle had cherubim woven into the curtains. The tabernacle was meant to picture the garden. The tabernacle was meant to picture the original creation. And so God dwelled with man in the garden, and now he's saying, I will dwell with man once more. But not only did it point back to creation, it also points forward to a new creation, to a greater glory that is going to be revealed. Uh, let, me, let me explain some things to you and show you some things. Actually, if you turn back to Genesis briefly, very briefly, keep a finger here in Exodus. I want you to turn back to Genesis, chapter, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. I want you to look here, and these words are going to be familiar to you if you've uh, read through the scriptures before. Genesis 1, starting in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Just want you to keep those words in your memory bank here and come back now to Exodus 39. 
Exodus 39. I want you to remember, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote the book of Genesis, and he also wrote the book of Exodus. I want you to listen to these words. Exodus 39, look at verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. The people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Jump down to verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. I mentioned last week, chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 starts off this way. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and so on. If you read carefully, and it it bears out in even some of the specific words in Hebrew, this is an echo back to creation. Genesis 131, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, 43, Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded. Genesis 2, 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Exodus 39, 32, thus the work of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting was finished. Genesis 2, 2, on the, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and that's a specific word for work there. Exodus 40, verse 33, so Moses finished the work. We read that earlier. Genesis 2, 3, so God blessed the seventh day. Exodus 39, 43, then Moses blessed them. So even the way that Moses describes and writes down the construction of the tabernacle is, is an echo of creation. It's been said that the tabernacle was a microcosm of Eden. It's a a miniature scale, a miniature representation of what is going on in Eden. And it's also a look forward to the purpose for the whole world. It's also a look forward to heaven. In other words, this reveals God's purpose for Israel and for the world. Remember in Genesis 1, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? He makes man in his own image, and he says, fill the earth. If the earth is filled with, with mankind, who is the image of God, the earth is filled with the glory of God. I want you to just consider that for a moment, because we see here in Exodus 40, the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God. The tabernacle is supposed to represent Eden, which really represents the whole world in a sense. And the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God. It's just this little tent in the wilderness there, right outside Mount Sinai, but one day that would come to represent what God would do for the whole world. And you know this because, listen to these verses, Numbers 14, 20 to 21, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. He says, two things are certain. I have pardoned you, but I'm not gonna let these people go into the promised land because of their sin. And he says, you know this is true for two certain reasons. As I live and as the the whole earth will be filled with my glory. These two things are certain, rock solid. Does God live? Yes. Will the earth be filled with his glory? Yes. It's a certainty. His goal is to fill the whole earth with his glory. Habakkuk 2.14, perhaps you're familiar with these words, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or perhaps you're familiar with the words in Isaiah 6, when the the angels call out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is God's purpose. This is God's aim. This idea of filling the earth with his glory becomes 
a refrain for God's people. They sing this in Psalm 57, verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It repeats that same line again in verse 11. Let your glory be over all the earth. In fact, Psalm 108, verse 5 says the same thing. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 72, 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. So you see here, Exodus ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. This tent is filled with his glory, but we can't go in. And we're just this people wandering through the wilderness. But this is not where it ends. There is a greater glory that is coming that will fill the whole earth. And again, this is not just, oh, great, that's good for God. When we behold the glory of God, when we dwell in the presence of God, there's pleasures forevermore. There's fullness of joy. To fill the earth with the glory of God, to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, the knowledge of his name, to fill the whole earth with his presence is to fill the whole earth with his blessing. We should long for that day. We were made for that. We long for that. Our hearts ache for that. Every unmet need that you have, every unmet desire, every frustration that you have is not answered by some new technological update. It's not answered by some medical breakthrough. It's not answered by some relational improvement. Every longing of your heart is ultimately unsatisfiable by anything in this world because you were made to know the living God, the one who will fill the earth with his glory. And so, yes, We see the arrival of the glory of God in the tabernacle, but we are awaiting a greater glory, a glory that will not just fill the tabernacle, but will fill the whole earth, but will fill the whole earth. Just to remind you here, Moses would later on in the book of Deuteronomy, as he is preparing to to die and leave Israel into the hands of Joshua, who would lead them into the promised land, Moses says, there's going to be a prophet who will come after me. There's going to be a prophet like me. You listen to him. So in a sense, Israel is meant to look forward to a new Moses. And yes, they were delivered through the Exodus, but later prophets would speak of a new Exodus, a greater Exodus. Not just one that would be deliverance from Egypt, but a greater Exodus, a greater deliverance. They walked through the the Red Sea after having been spared by the blood of a Passover lamb. They were also looking forward to a a greater Passover lamb. A lamb who Isaiah 53 says would be pierced for their transgressions. They were waiting for a new exodus, a new Moses, a a new Passover, a a greater deliverance. They were waiting for a greater temple. This tabernacle was this temporary thing through the wilderness. Even when they got to Solomon's temple, I mean, Solomon spared no expense. You think this thing was a lot. Remember, we talked about last week, over $60 million worth of gold went into the tabernacle. That was nothing compared to Solomon. Solomon's temple was far greater than that. And Solomon, in his prayer of dedication, said, what is this house? The heavens and the earth cannot continue. The universe cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built for you. 
Yes, this was amazing. It was ornate. It was, it was massive. It was, but it was too small. Uh, the, the book of Ezekiel ends with this prophecy of a, of a new temple, of a greater temple, which the glory of the Lord would fill, and it would be this temple with a, a river that runs out of it that, that blesses the whole world. This is this amazing, huge temple that is prophesied by Ezekiel. They're waiting for this greater temple, and then Jesus arrives and says, something greater than the temple is here, me. He's the temple, he says. And then as we're connected to him, we are the temple. So we're waiting for a new Exodus, and a new Moses, a new Passover, a, a greater deliverance, a, a greater temple, and therefore we're waiting for a greater glory, one that would not be confined to one people with one building, but one that would fill the whole earth, a glory that would be the joy of all peoples from all nations, of all tribes and all tongues. This is why, this is why we as a church want to preach the gospel to our neighbors. This is why we as a church want to send missionaries around the world. Because Jesus is worthy of more worship than we alone can give. Jesus is worthy of the worship of all peoples from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. Jesus is worthy because he brings a greater glory. So I hope you see how the book of Exodus is not just about what God did historically one time for one people in one instance, but the book of Exodus lays out a paradigm for how God will save, for how God will transform the whole world. In in their book, Echoes of the Exodus, Alastair Roberts and Andrew Wilson wrote this, the Exodus is central to the scriptures, central to the gospel, and central to the Christian life. Whatever book of the Bible you are reading, whatever Christian practices you are involved in, Echoes of the Exodus are in there somewhere. Next week when we celebrate communion, that's an echo of the Exodus. That's an echo of Passover. When we see somebody get baptized, when they go through the waters, coming out with new life, that's an echo of the Red Sea going through with new life. When we think about Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, that is a new Sinai with a new Moses, with a new law. Every part of our Christian lives has an echo back to Exodus somewhere. This is why, and again, I've, I've read this before, but just to cap it off with this again, turn to Luke, Luke chapter 9. We talked a couple weeks ago about the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, that has echoes back to the Exodus as well. But you look at Luke 9, 31, Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory is, is revealed in a way that, that astounds his disciples. And in Luke 9, 31, I want you to look at what, what it says there. I'll start in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, if, if your Bible has little footnotes, you might see a footnote there by the word departure. And if you look down at the bottom, perhaps your footnote says that in Greek, it's the word, what? Exodus. There are other words for departure. There are other words for going up to heaven, so to speak. But he says specifically that Moses and Elijah were speaking to him about his exodus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
this exodus that he would accomplish by shedding not the blood of a Passover lamb, but by shedding the blood of himself, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, this, this exodus account is not just historical. It is, it is for us. It is personal. God's glory dwelled in the tabernacle. God's glory now, if you are a believer, it dwells within you. He dwells within you by means of his, his spirit. The, the, the presence of God, the glory of God dwells among the church, not in a visible cloud, but he dwells among his people, and that's why he commands us to be holy. Just as the tabernacle had to be built with exact specifications, it had to be anointed, it had to be cleansed with blood and anointed with, with the oil of incense. The, the tabernacle had to be set apart and holy, not like common things. It was special. And so too, the church today, the, the temple of God in this age must be holy, must be set apart. We must, must not be like the world. I don't say that with a, with a form of proud condescension. Uh, when I say we are not to be like the world, we are to be set apart with holiness. We are not to to dabble with sin. We're not to have proud infighting one with another. We're to be the people of God walking in holiness because we know that God longs to dwell among us. God, the Holy One, longs to walk in our midst. And so we want to see God's glory in us personally as we pursue holiness. We want to see the glory of God in our midst as the church, as we pursue him corporately. And we want to see the glory of God in the world as we go and proclaim Christ. And I want you to think here for a moment. We, we mentioned earlier that Moses couldn't go in. Remember that? And Exodus ends with this cliffhanger. Mo- Moses couldn't go in. Later on, the priest couldn't go into Solomon's temple. The glory of God was too much. It would not be until the new heavens and new earth that that is remedied. You should look back at the end of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 and 22. Remember, Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle. Moses couldn't see God face to face. God said, no man shall see me and live. You may not see my face. You may not see my full glory. But look at what happens in Revelation 21. Let me start there in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. And the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And again, if you see a footnote there, you look down, it says tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And maybe you're thinking, okay, but we've had a tabernacle before. Israel had a tabernacle and they couldn't go in. But look what's different about this one. Look at Revelation 21 verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
They don't even need the sun because the glory of God is there. They have no veil. There is no covering. They can see the glory of God fully there. Look at Revelation 22, verses 4 to 5, the last two verses before the prologue of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Do you long for that? Do you look forward to that? Every burden, every tear, every sorrow, every regret melts away in this, in this day. Oh, my, my prayer is that God would loosen the grip of my hands on this world, that God would help me to see, as that, as that old song says, that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's my hope for you. That's my hope for me. Now, if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. This is new to me. I, I don't have this longing for the presence of God. I don't have this longing for the glory of God. I don't, I don't quite get it. Or maybe I want it. How do I get there? I know I don't have it. How do I get there? Friend, I want to make sure you hear this loud and clear. The message of of Exodus is not go and follow the Ten Commandments and maybe God will let you in. The message of Exodus is trust the Lord who saves through sacrifice. And what do I mean by that? You see, the, the Exodus pointed forward to a greater sacrifice, to a greater deliverer, to a greater mediator, to Jesus Christ. God was setting a pattern for us to see and follow. And and here this morning, I can tell you, the end of the story is that God sent not just a man like Moses, but God sent his own son. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who deserved no death, no suffering. He deserved every joy, every pleasure, every ounce of worship in this entire universe. He is the Son of God, and God sent him to die in the place of sinners, to die to take away my sin, to take away your sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, if God were to look at you as you are in yourself right now, he should condemn you. He should condemn me. And your own conscience bears witness to that. But if you trust in Christ, it's not a matter of works, it's not a matter of being good enough. None of us could ever be good enough. But if you trust in Christ, he says, if you trust in my son, I will take your sin and put it on him. And I will take his righteousness and put it on you so that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't paying for his own sin, but when Jesus died on the cross, he was fulfilling your debt. He was paying your debt. And when I look at you, 
I see the perfect righteousness of my son, Jesus. So you can enter into my glory with no veil, no separation, face-to-face, eternal joy, pleasures forever. It's yours by grace through faith. Friend, that is the good news of the gospel. So if you don't know him, I would, I would beg you, I would beg you to put your faith in him, to turn away from sin, to turn away from the things of this world that pl- promise pleasure and always underfulfill. Sin overpromises and underfulfills every time, but God never will disappoint. So friends, I, I hope... I hope you see the beauty of God's word, the beauty of God's plan, the beauty of the Exodus. Israel, the Old Testament people of God, they were an Exodus-centered people. And that sets the pattern for us now to be a gospel-centered, a cross-centered, a Christ-centered people. May this loom large in our minds and our hearts as we live for him and follow after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is so rich, God, we thank you not just for your word that is rich, but for, your, for who you are, for your great name, that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet who will by no means clear the guilty. Oh, Lord, thank you for being the God that you are and revealing yourself to us and even making a way of forgiveness for us. May we cherish that. May we rejoice in that. And if any are here who do not know you, may they seek you even today by faith and repentance. Father, we thank you for the greater glory that comes in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.